I am, uh, I'm really glad, I'm sure that's been clear throughout this series, I'm glad that we've chosen to do it, and I'm really glad that as we thought about these services that we decided to have testimonies from members. Um, this, obviously, for people who are newer with us, we don't have that kind of thing happening every Sunday, um, and even maybe the kind of obvious emotion that you've seen is maybe not typical, though I trust felt often by many of us, I pray all of us, uh, in services weekly. Uh, and to be gripped and affected by God, his gospel, his son, his grace is good. And uh, yeah, pray for me that I can get through this sermon. Um, yeah, it's, it's good to be stirred by the Holy Spirit and what the Lord has done. So let's pray for me, for my sake and for yours, uh, that this can be useful. And Kurt, I know I told you I didn't need those paper towels. I may have lied to you. I may be wrong. Uh, we'll see. But friends, let's pray before we look to the Word. Our Father in heaven, you are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. We thank you for your Son, for his life his death, his resurrection, his righteousness that is counted to rebels like us through faith. And we pray, Lord, that you would come during this time now by your Holy Spirit. As you already have met with us, we know that you have been here. We pray that you would keep pouring your Spirit out upon us as we now look to your Word and what it would say to us about addiction and dependency. This, this is certainly over my head, and it's over our heads, and yet we trust in you, that you can do great things in this time, and we pray for that to happen in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So this is, uh, as most of you know, this is the fourth sermon of four on basically mental and emotional health issues. Uh, dealing with darkness is what we've entitled the sermon series. And what's awesome is that the Bible is not silent about the most difficult things in life. And that includes these intense inner wrestlings and struggles that we have. Whether that's depression or anxiety and intense fear or grief and sorrow and loneliness like we thought about a week ago or addiction uh, and dependency of of various kinds. And what we've really been doing in this sermon series, at least from my perspective, is we have been looking at really intense issues that we all either have experienced or can sort of understand. And we've been using these issues to really consider what it looks like to live life as a Christian in this world. What does it look like to live life as a redeemed sinner? Because we have been delivered from bondage to sin and Satan and death through Christ. And at the same time, we still battle this thing called indwelling sin. We still battle the flesh. And we have not been finally and ultimately delivered yet. It will happen. That's the great hope. That we will be ultimately saved from this to God. And we get to be with Him and His Son forever. That's the hope. But we live in this in-between this already but not yet. And that's what we really have been looking at together. It's thinking about that. And you can kind of, as I said last week, sort of fill in the blank. So today is addiction. But you could pretty much put whatever your most intense sin struggles are, put that in that blank. Because it's still, it's, it's all applicable, right, to our general struggle against sin and the flesh. So I'm really grateful for what we've been able to consider together. And we've been thinking about what it would look like to have a church in which there is an honest treatment of these issues and yet at the same time a compassionate treatment of these issues for the believer. And how can we walk together in a way that's good for us as strugglers, right? And so it's been really, really good for my heart and for my mind, I pray, that it has been for you. And uh, just for a couple of the folks in the room who I know are newer with us, just a brief sort of disclaimer. These kinds of topical sermons are not what we do every week. Uh, we're often working our way through books of the Bible. But we also find usefulness in these kinds of topical sermons. Um, so stick with us for a number of weeks more. Next week, in fact, we'll be starting uh, a sermon series through Galatians, and we're excited for that. 
As I've said each week, I just want to go ahead and give you these things on the front end. I'm going to be giving specific words to the addicts, the sufferers, whatever words we want to use. But I'm also going to be speaking directly to caregivers too. And I would understand everything I say to sort of apply to everyone. Because many of us are sufferers in the room from various forms of addiction and dependency. Others of us are caregivers. We're all at least one of them, if not both. And I would be sort of remiss to, to say, well, just before I get to this last piece, let me say this. There will be, again today, some reiteration of principles that you've heard in weeks prior. I would just, if I were you, rather than thinking, oh my goodness, here he goes, talking about this again, I would just trust the Holy Spirit that God is doing this in our church and that he is teaching us truth from his word that's good for us as we think about these big, massive issues. And I would encourage all of you, if you've missed a sermon or whatever, as soon as we get these online, we'll let you know that. Uh, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to all four of them together to get a more sort of comprehensive look at this issue of mental and emotional health and just dealing with sin in general. But the last thing that I want to say just by way of introduction is that this has been true of each of these sermons, but I maybe feel it in an especially acute way today. Uh, the scope of this topic is massive. The scope of this topic is way out of my depth, as I already have said, and there's no way in the world to say everything that could be said or on the one hand even needs to be said about addiction in one sermon. And so there will be no way that I can answer every question, that I could respond to every conceivable objection. And so I'm just saying that to you. I know that you understand that, but I'm just going ahead and laying that out there for you. And I trust that even in a room with as much like-mindedness as we have, there may be some points of disagreement on some of these smaller issues. And that's okay. As long as we agree about the main things as a church, we can work out some of the details that fall underneath them as time passes. But I'm confident, I can say this, that before the Lord in good conscience, that what I am going to say today is biblical, it's Christ-centered, it's gospel-centered, and it will be good, I trust, for our church. And so my plan for today is to briefly describe addiction, not in totality, not exhaustively, but to talk some about it. And then after that, I want to consider addiction under five headings, and I'll give you those as we go. So let's just talk with one another. This is the kind of conversational piece, maybe. Uh, I hope it all is in good ways. Um, about addiction and dependency and what that means for us. The reason I put the word dependency next to addiction is because they so often go together, right? In one sense, a component of addiction is a dependency upon someone, something, some experience, whatever. This dependency can be physical, bodily, like really physical, and it can also be alongside that psychological. There is this component of obsession that almost always comes with this too. We become obsessed with things, with pleasures, with ideas, with whatever. And we will, as the brothers who have shared today have indicated, we will pursue them in the face of everything. Of, in the face of any opposition. And obviously, when we talk about something like addiction or dependency, there comes into it this aspect of being absolutely ruled over by it, enslaved to it. Oftentimes, we know it's bad. There is a part of us, certainly, that doesn't want it, but yet we are enslaved to it and often feel bound and powerless to do anything about our predicament. And I want to paint with a, a broad brush for just a moment because I think I'm, I'm appreciative, uh, Stan, brother, even of, of what you brought into the addiction conversation with the gaming this morning. Because I think oftentimes when we think about addiction, we're very narrow in our scope and in our focus. We often only think about what? Drugs, alcohol, maybe porn. But then beyond that, we often don't say much. And I'm, I'm very mindful of the fact that I just said porn so nonchalantly in this church, and I'm actually grateful that I can, because we've got to talk honestly. This is another side note. We need to be able to talk about the most difficult things in the world and the most, really, the ugliest of sins in the world if we're going to have any shot of living honestly together. 
right? And so this is not to be crude. It's not to put ideas into people's heads, but it's to be real about fallen human experience. And so that's just that. And let me get back into to this. So when we talk about addiction, we need to be comprehensive enough, broad enough in our scope. So it certainly includes things like substances, drugs of various kinds, whether we're talking about opiates, which would be the, the heroin oxycodone kind of stuff, or the stimulants like cocaine or meth, or the hallucinogenic stuff like LSD, or alcohol, nicotine, maybe even caffeine, if we want to start throwing things in there, right? It can also be addiction. It can be of a sexual nature. Sexual addiction is prevalent, always has been, throughout the history of the world. This certainly can manifest itself in pornography. That's a common way that it happens today. But I think we are kidding ourselves if we think that's the only venue. Sexual fantasy is a struggle for practically every human being. Sexual fantasies, I mean, there's a reason, friends, that Fifty Shades of Grey is a bestseller, right? If we think that Fifty Shades of Grey and erotic literature and sexual fantasy is different than pornography, that's just wrong-headed. One is an image, yes. The other is just as dangerous. This affects so many and has affected so many even sitting here in this room. And then in addition to just the fantasy life, of course, we live in a culture where extramarital and premarital sex is flat out normal and you're weird if you're not engaging in it. And so we have these addictions to sexual fantasy but also these sexual experiences. Addiction also includes the realm of entertainment, so video games, like our brother shared this morning, whether that's online or just in your home with the console or whatever. It would include things like Netflix, right? A lot of times we joke about binge-watching shows or whatever, and I'm not saying that's always wrong. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong to go home and spend an afternoon and evening watching a show, but how many of us have found ourselves falling into this trap where it's like the oasis in my life is the show on Netflix and I've got to see it. I've got to have it. I know I should go to bed, but hey, babe, why don't we watch a couple more episodes, you know? It's that kind of stuff. It's also gambling. I mean, that's obvious, right? I mean, in some ways, maybe. Even if casino business is going down, gambling business in general is on the up and up because of online opportunities and things of that nature. So that's prevalent. And there's a thrill and a rush and an adrenaline piece that goes along with some of that gambling that is related to some other things we may consider later. In our day, I think many of us have to be honest that addiction could even cover something like social media, devices. Now everybody's kind of squirming in their seats, right? Because it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah, he's now going to talk about Insta and Snapchat and Twitter and Facebook. It's true. I mean, we all ought to be assessing this honestly. How much time do I spend looking at this stuff? Facebook in and of itself is fine. Twitter in and of itself, not a bad thing. But oftentimes we become flat out addicted to it. And there's a reason why statistically the average American checks his or her phone. I can't remember how many like hundreds of times a day that we just kind of go over to it and hit the home button. See if I've got any messages. See if I've got any notifications. Whatever. We become addicted to this stuff. And then there are other things. I mean, you guys are, I think, grasping the picture. This is very wide sweeping. And so there's things like food. We can become addicted to certain kinds of food, like sugar. You think I'm joking, stop eating it for a week. Stop eating refined sugar for a week and, and, and come talk to me, right? This is not to get on a high horse about diets or anything like that, but it's true. We become dependent upon the sensations and the gratification and the feelings that it produces. We can be addicted to sports, playing them, or watching them, or whatever, betting on them. It can happen. And there are always the quote-unquote adrenaline junkies in our midst, right, that are always seeking thrills. There's a reason they're called adrenaline junkies for a reason, right? This, is, this and more. We could go, I could go on and on and on for half an hour about all the ways that we are prone to be addicted to substances, to things, to experiences, to people, to whatever. And just to be very clear... I'm not trying to equate all of these things. So I'm not trying to say that your issue with Facebook has the same kind of consequences or as, is as serious as being addicted to some substance. I'm not trying to compare the two in that sense. Of course there are different consequences. 
right? And we could have a conversation maybe about the damage that it does to others and all of that. But the point is still to be made that the struggle is much broader than we often think. And anyone who has struggled with addiction, at least in a conscious way, would, I think, identify with the fact that the experience of it is something that is, it's hard to describe because there is this kind of thrill and gratification and satisfaction piece of it. And then there is alongside that a misery and a helplessness that comes with it. It's, it's funny too because we can be doing well for a while. And this was sort of touched on this morning. We've been doing well for a while and then suddenly, inexplicably, out of nowhere, it's, it's back. Right? It's pulling. It's talking to me. I'm feeling it. I'm craving it. I'm wanting it. We know what that's like, most of us, in this room. It's the power of sin. Right? It's the deceitfulness of the enemy. This is how it always happens. It feels like it's coming after us. Right? I, didn't, I didn't really ask for this. I'm not really pursuing it even right now. But it's coming after me. And what's always hard, and we'll think more about this later, but in case I don't get to talk about it much, I'll just say it now. Sin always looks, the addiction, the sin, whatever it is associated with it, it always looks, sounds good on the front end. Always. This is one of the greatest devices of Satan. Is that he always dresses sin up and makes it so enticing. All we remember is, we tend to remember in the moment, is the pleasure, the gratification, the thrill, the satisfaction. And we are mindless as to the destruction and the agony and the anguish that often comes a nanosecond after it's done, right? That's what happens to us. This is why we constantly need to be crying out to the Lord that He would renew our minds according to His Word, right? So that we can begin to be changed from the inside out so that we have something with which to fight when we encounter that kind of stuff. So that's all somewhat introductory in a way, even in talking about the experience of addiction. And I think that experience is relatively universal regardless of what the particular addiction may be. So now I want to give us five headings under which to consider this issue. Heading number one is origins. Origins. So this is the question of the sin of addiction, where does it come from? Origins. Again, I think we tend to be very reductionistic in our thinking here. It's often, whether we're talking about the church or the world, I think errors are made. We can either make addiction into a purely physical biological issue or we can make it into a completely spiritual one and the reality is this is a holistic comprehensive issue like all these other things that we've been talking about so there are without doubt spiritual roots and we're going to think about that in just a moment as well as moral concerns and considerations psychological concerns and considerations as well as biological ones this is an issue with the entire person, right? The Bible makes sense of this. The Bible is very clear about sin and what it is and about us and who we are and how we were made and these various components to our persons, right? So this shouldn't surprise us at all. The Scripture is very clear. So here we go thinking about some of these origins, maybe in a slight bit more of detail. The scripture is quite clear about the idolatrous human heart. The human heart after the fall is naturally and always prone to seeking what we think will satisfy us. Apart from God, without the work of His Spirit, right? We are constantly pursuing with everything we have what we think will do it for us. What we think will bring pleasure and satisfaction and joy. And the thing is, Apart from God and His Holy Spirit, that pursuit always, always ends in disappointment. One story, there's so many. I mean, where, where in the world can we go in the Bible? Like, any place. But you can't help but think about the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Right? Jesus encounters this woman, and she has literally been looking for love in all the wrong places. Right? 
And so she meets Christ. She's coming to draw water and he asks her for a drink. She says, what are you talking to me for? Jews generally don't have anything to do with Samaritans. And he says, basically, after a few more uh, interchanges, he's basically like, you know, if you knew who you're talking to, you would ask me for living water and I would give it to you. This gift of God, I would give it to you. And you would never be thirsty again. Because this water that you come to get, even from Jacob's well, and water, of course, is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Right? But this water that you come to get, you always end up thirsty again. There's only one thing. It's, it's God. It's His Messiah. It's His truth. There's only one thing that will leave you in a situation where you'll never be thirsty again. And so apart from God and His truth, His gospel, His Son, His righteousness, His promises of heaven forever with Him, there is nothing in this world that can satisfy and so the pursuit is a disappointing and fruitless one. But yet we all engage in it, right? It's universal. It's irrational, but it's universal. The Bible is also very clear about the power of sin. The power of sin. For the unbeliever outside of the Lord Jesus, sin is described as bondage, slavery, right? It is a cruel master and it rules over us. We are, biblically speaking, unwilling and unable to do anything on our own about sin and its power. But then, even for the believer, there is this issue that I've already touched on called indwelling sin. It's that residual piece of the old man, it's the flesh. Read Romans 7. Honestly, go home today and read Romans 5 through 8. One of the greatest sections of the Bible. I'm going to be touching on Romans 6 and 7 today. Romans 7 is an absolutely gripping presentation of the internal wrestlings of a Christian. Of a person who knows the truth, who has been changed by the Holy Spirit, who in his spiritual aspects, in his spirit, his renewed, redeemed part of him wants to obey God, wants to be righteous, wants to do good, wants to flee from evil, and yet there is this thing called sin that's there that causes him, the Apostle Paul writing this, says, I do things that I don't want to do. I don't do things that I want to do. It's not because of me. Notice he's saying, I've been changed. It's because of sin that I do this stuff. We're going to think more about some of that identity piece here in a minute. This is important. But the power of sin, friends, is real for you. Whether or not, if you're not a believer, your only hope is Jesus. And the grace of God through Him by faith. But even for the Christian, your only hope is Jesus. The grace of God by His Spirit, right? Working in you. Doing something you can't do. And the struggle is real. The Bible is also very clear, friends, about the fall of man. The fall of man, and by that we mean, it's a theological way of saying how sin came into the world and how it fundamentally changed the human race forever until God finally makes it new. So because of the original sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and the fact that they were our representatives, so by that we mean in their sin, we all sinned. In their sin, we are all plunged into ruin. In their guilt, we are all guilty. Because of that, every part of us, every aspect of our person is affected, including certainly our psychology and our biology as a result of the fall. We are born, as we've been thinking about in this series, we are born, all of us, with various proclivities, various predispositions to struggle with sin. We all are sinners, yes, and we all struggle in particular ways. Some of the struggles are more common, some more particular. And obviously, in a sermon like this, I am suggesting that an addictive personality, a person prone in unique ways to struggle with addiction, is a result of the fall. And it is a manifestation in that individual's life of original sin. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't exonerate them, but we need to be real. And the Bible speaks to these things, just like we thought about 
proclivities and predispositions towards depression or anxiety or whatever. The same is true for addiction. And so what this should produce for the sufferer is awareness. Awareness of what in the heck's going on with me. And it also should produce honesty in the sufferer. I can talk with my brothers and sisters about my proclivities and about my predispositions. Hey, bro, as I'm getting to know you in the faith, one of the first things you ought to know about me is my tendency to be addicted to things. That's just wise living amongst believers. And also in the sufferer, it should produce this humility in which you seek help. There's no reason to play the game that you're fine. None of us are fine. We all need help. And for these kinds of strugglers, the, the addicts, the addicted personality types, seeking help is a big piece of this. And this conversation should, and these truths should make that possible. For the others of us who may not struggle with addiction as much per se, this kind of truth, the proclivity predisposition truth, it ought to produce compassion and it should produce patience with the struggler, right? If it doesn't, I don't think we're thinking well because as soon as we step out of this addiction conversation over into another conversation, we're now getting into a situation where I may be prone to sin and struggle. And I hope my brothers and sisters are compassionate with me in my predispositions and proclivities. And so I pray that we are compassionate and patient with the struggles with addiction. Before we move on from this, I want to talk about a few just contributing factors when we come to this conversation of addiction. So the root cause is what I've already said. Sin, the fall. But there are contributing factors in a person's life that might lead to addiction. For example, addiction is often about lusts. It's about the pursuit of pleasure. Right? That's obvious. But beyond that, there's a lot. Addiction can be related to, contributed to by anger. By woundedness, right? By disappointment in life and just general sadness about your circumstances. Addiction can be contributed to by boredom, by just a disenchantment with your life. Other things. Depression. I mean, my goodness, as we've thought about depression, depression can be a contributing factor in this addiction conversation, as well as anxiety and fear. Being afraid that things are going to happen. I've got to escape. I've got to get away from this bad thing that I'm terrified of. All of these things and more contribute to the addiction conversation. So I don't have time to, to parse all this out in detail, but this should at least help us say, okay, you know, there's always more to it than the kind of flat answer I want to give. The kind of flat assessment that I want to give. And compassion and mercy leaves room for the deep conversation with the person to say, okay, let's, I think I understand some of the underlying sin struggle, but then let's talk about your life and what's happened to you and what you've done and all the rest and your other struggles that may be contributing here. That's what compassionate, responsible care would look like. And it's important that we're aware of these other underlying sin problems as we come to this. Because part, I would, I would say, that part of progress, a big part of progress and ongoing care with respect to addiction is the uncovering and dealing with these, these underlying sin issues that contribute, right? So it's never just the addiction conversation. It's, all right, let's talk about sin in general in your life and your other patterns that may be contributing. And this is true for us in every scenario, not just with addiction. And the last thing that I will say before we move on, this is as good a place as there is to say it. When we talk about addiction, we, generally speaking, are talking about the abuse of God's good gifts. Now, there may be some exceptions to that. But before you immediately go thinking, well, there's clearly no good for opiates. Well, when's the last time you had surgery? Right? I'm sure you're grateful for the fact that opiates and things like that exist. So even those things are, in some sense, a common grace of God when used rightly. The problem is not with God, the giver. The problem is not with the gifts. The problem is with your heart and mine. 
We are the ones who take good things and jack them up and pervert them. That's the issue. And when we're talking about addiction, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a perverted use of a good gift that then becomes addicting and obsessing and controls me. So this is not to say that there is not room for the responsible, God-honoring enjoyment of good things He's given. Right? And that's another sermon for another day. But we want to uphold that, that God has made a good world. God has made a world full of amazing things that we can enjoy to His glory and praise and for our good. But that's not what we're talking about here today. Right? We're talking about a sinful thing. I hope that distinction is clear. Because we want to uphold both here at CBC. Alright, so now we're moving on to heading number two. Heading number two. And just truth in advertising, the last three headings I think will go more quickly. Um, but this one is, is important that we spend some time here. Heading number two is ultimate hope. Ultimate hope. So you guys know where I'm going here. No shock. It's like, well, this is when he's going to talk to us about the Lord Jesus and the gospel. And you would be right. Ultimate hope is found nowhere else and in no one else save God the Son incarnate named Jesus. We have talked at length, and I'm going to try to be more brief today, we have talked at length in recent months about the fact that biblical Christianity teaches that you cannot earn salvation, that you cannot merit God's favor, that you contribute absolutely nothing on the front end, and you contribute nothing even once you're a Christian to your final standing before God. That word contribute is important. You don't in and of yourself do it. Salvation, justification, being reconciled to God, made right with Him, happens through Christ alone, by the grace, unmerited favor of God alone, through the mechanism of faith alone. You trust it. It's as simple on the one hand as that. Simple and yet unfathomably deep, right? That I am saved from the power of sin and Satan and hell simply by acknowledging that what God has said about Himself and about me and about His Son is true and believing that, owning that, and casting myself headlong upon to Christ and His mercy. Upon to Christ and His righteousness that He has accomplished for me. That is Christianity. And so, that's where ultimate hope and deliverance always has to come from. That's where ultimate assurance has to come from. Christ, His righteousness. That's where joy ultimately has to be found. In Christ and the promises of God through Him, applied by the Holy Spirit. Amen, somebody. So when we talk about this ultimate hope that can be found in Christ alone, through faith alone. We're talking about freedom. We're talking about freedom from bondage and captivity. And you may be sitting there thinking, okay, like, Ron, you've already done this in one sense, brother. Thank you for your words earlier. But the question would be like, captive to what? In bondage to what and to who? And the answer, of course, is to sin, to Satan, and to death. You've been set free in the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. You heard them read earlier. I'm going to read them for you again. You don't feel the need to turn there unless you want to. This is a passage in the Old Testament about the Messiah who would come. The Savior who would come. Jesus is His name. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, the afflicted, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that He may be glorified. The goal of the Messiah of the Christ is to set free the children of God from sin, from Satan, and from hell. His goal is to sanctify them that they may be called oaks of righteousness all to the glory of God. And, friend, 
If you're sitting here and you're in Christ today, you can take heart. You can rest your head tonight and every other night that He does not fail in His mission. That He will save to the uttermost all of His children. And that He will provide perfect righteousness that is not in jeopardy. Right? And you can know, as Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, that the one who has called you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is not something that you ultimately do. Yes, you act and you work and you strive by the enabling power of God's Spirit. And at the same time, God is the one who does it. And that's comforting to a sinner. The other piece of this, though, that we have to consider in terms of the ultimate hope is what I think is one of the most neglected doctrines in the church today. And that is this doctrine of union with Christ. Union with Christ. So this is the question of identity. Who are you? What are you? I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. I do want you to put your eyes on this. I'm going to read basically all of the chapter and I'm just going to make a few comments as I go because I want you to put your eyes on this. Because this text speaks in one sense for itself. Have that identity question in your mind. Identity. Who am I? Romans chapter 6. Paul has just argued for the counting of righteousness to sinners by faith in Jesus. And that as sin happened, grace came and abounded all the more because we're counted righteous through faith. So here we go. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He he anticipates the objection. Well, bro, if you preach this gospel of righteousness by faith alone, you're going to produce lawlessness. And he says, by no means, verse 2, shall we continue in sin. And he doesn't give them law. Notice this. He doesn't say, and I want to preach this sermon now and I'm not going to, but he does not respond to this lawlessness issue with more law. He responds with this, union with Christ through faith. By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? How can we who have been converted and changed by the Spirit of God live how we used to live before that happened to us? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now that's talking about bodily resurrection at the end of history, and it's also talking about the new birth. That you have been resurrected from your spiritually dead state to live as unto God, and to walk In newness of life. So literally what Paul is saying is that do you not realize, Christian, that you have been baptized quite literally into the name of the triune God? I mean, what do you think we're doing when we baptize people? I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not just for rote, perfunctory reasons. That's because when you are baptized upon a profession of faith, you are being identified by the name of the triune God of the universe. This is a big deal. This is a fundamental change in your identity and mine. Okay. I'm going to kind of breeze through these next few verses. Verse 6. We know that our old self, or the old man, that's the flesh, right, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So there's that issue of bondage, right? We're not bound to it anymore. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Again, I think implications for this life and eternity. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Praise be to His name. And therefore, it doesn't over you anymore either. Because you're in Him. For the death He died, He died to sin. Once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Not that the passions aren't still there, but don't let it reign because it doesn't rule you anymore. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. I mean, Paul is just stating this stuff, guys. It's not sin won't have dominion over you if you won't let it. It's sin does not have dominion over you anymore in Christ. Full stop. Here we go. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Again, that age-old objection. By no means, he says. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is who you are as a Christian in Christ. Verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. That's a good reminder. Don't make perfect one-to-one analogies. It breaks down at some point, right? That's what Paul is saying. But I'm trying to help you understand. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, that's before you knew Christ, before you were in Him, You were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Answer, none. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, again, this has happened to you, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. That's the fruit you get from sin. But the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay. You realize that the term Christian is hardly at all used in the New Testament. How are believers described? Most often in the New Testament, like by minds. They are described this way. In Christ. In Christ. That's the descriptor. That's the name given to you as a follower of the Lord Jesus. That's the primary way we are Described. And as I mentioned earlier, we have literally been baptized into the name of God. We are no longer, like objective reality, this has happened. We are no longer under sin's dominion. We are no longer enslaved to it. Affected by it? Yes. Sometimes whipped by it? Yes. Not dominated, not ruled over, not in bondage to it anymore. So this matters for us. In this conversation, because when we talk about addiction in our church as believers, we want to call it what it is. We want to be real about it. It's horrors. We don't want to be naive, right? And at the same time, I want us, we want to be careful in the ways that we talk. So the kind of formula that you may hear that says, hi, my name is so-and-so, and I'm an addict. I'm not saying that that's completely wrong in terms of what is trying to be conveyed. But that's not right for the Christian. That's not right for the Christian. So what is right, brother? The right thing to say, correct thing to say, biblical thing to say is, Hi, my name is so-and-so, and I am in Christ, and I struggle with addiction. My name is Justin, and I am in Christ, and I struggle with this. That is the formula. And you may think, well, bro, that's just semantics. No, it's not. It is not. It is a question fundamentally of identity. There's a world of difference to be outside of Christ and be an addict as to be in Christ and be an addict struggling with addiction. Those are different things. In Christ... Out of Christ is the issue. Because when you're saying that I'm in Christ, you're saying He is mine and I am His and everything He has is mine. And yes, I struggle with addiction. That's right. It's fundamental to this conversation. Because see, if you're in Christ, friend, you can also rest assured that the power of God's Holy Spirit will work in you will work in you. You will be changed from the inside out. What's cool is that God has told us that this transformation, it takes place ultimately by the power 
of His Spirit, as we trust His Son, as we look to the Word of God, as we pray, and, and ultimately, too, as we live life in these God-ordained communities called local churches. It's where this happens. The Holy Spirit works through the church. Just as He does through the Word and prayer. Right? We need each other. This idea that you can be a Christian apart from the local church is absolutely ridiculous and non-biblical. And that's not to slap the Holy Spirit in the face. That's not to slap the Bible in the face, so to speak. That's not to slap Jesus in the face. Jesus Himself, the Holy Spirit Himself who inspired the Bible, is the one who told you you need the church. So don't be a fool when it comes to this conversation and think you can just somehow go it alone. And so, I think that it's been made clear enough that the hope of the believer, the orientation of the believer is always an outward orientation. We're always looking to God. We're always aiming to love Him and love others. And I think that in this conversation about addiction, this matters for us too because addiction, like any other sin struggle, I think when the emphasis or the obsession is only about you and it's only about your addiction and your struggle and your issue that can become very unhelpful but when we speak and when we talk and we try to work on these things with this kind of outward Godward orientation then I think we're getting somewhere and things can get better and as I said last week I believe I'm going to just state it again if you have appreciated at all the kind of honest treatment of these issues that you've heard in these sermons if you have appreciated it all alongside an honest treatment, the charge for compassion, but then also this offer of legitimate hope that's like realistic, if you've appreciated that at all, just a reminder to you, or just a news thing for you, that that, what we're doing, can only happen and can only come through the gospel. That's it. You divorce Jesus from this, you take the gospel out of this conversation, you take the word of God outside of this conversation, and you necessarily will lose something. You certainly lose ultimate hope. But then you really lose the ability to be completely reasonable and realistic about the issues, the depth of them. And you also lose the ability to be compassionate in a way that's genuine and real. I'm not saying that compassion and those kinds of things don't exist apart from this. I'm not saying that there aren't true things in the world. I'm just saying that you lose something of massive significance. All right, so I'm going to try to move us quickly, friends. I'm aware of time. I'm going to try to move us quickly through the last three headings. So heading number three is a heading that I'm just calling common sense. Common sense. So we would be remiss if we didn't address some of this stuff in a sermon like this. So when you are talking about an addiction issue, whether we're talking about drugs, alcohol, pornography, you fill in the blank, many of those circumstances are going to require what I might call triage work. What we, that's a term we use as elders sometimes, triage work. Like, it's really acute. We've got to assess it and like, deal with this like, in, like, now and try to parse this out and determine what's good. And then there will be this kind of ongoing piece. Right? So in this acute kind of triage phase, we want, to exercise, we want to always exercise common sense. But common sense is especially required in this. What I mean is that don't talk to the alcoholic about his drinking while he's drunk. That kind of goes without saying Right? What we want to do is love him sober and then start to do the work of talking about the alcohol and the alcoholism. So when we're talking about getting off drugs or getting sober, that might include rehab in a facility. It could be a more informal form of rehab with brothers and sisters, round-the-clock care. We've done that in this church. It may involve a detox, again, in a facility, or maybe, maybe not. It may involve helpful programs. I think there is room in this conversation to talk about programs that even exist outside of the church to use in particular in this acute phase of trying to help people get sober and get off of drugs because that's clearly good for them. And so the elders try to consider all of these things when, we, when we're counseling somebody, in this, especially in this initial acute phase. Something we want to be able to do is to cut off access to the thing. So whether that's a substance or whether that's alcohol or whether that's pornography or erotic literature or Netflix, maybe you get rid of that. Maybe you sell the Xbox. Whatever. Maybe you take the Facebook app off your phone. I don't know. 
Common sense, right? Does that fix the root problem? No. But is it useful? Yes. Let's not be ridiculous. Let's not be overly spiritual about that. To cut off access is a good thing. It doesn't fix it, but it's wise. And then, after we have loved someone through that acute phase, that rehab phase, that detox phase, that whatever phase, right? Then we can really begin the work of ongoing care and compassionate accountability. And I use that phrase, love them through it on purpose. Because it takes a lot of it, right? It's hard. Anybody who's been through this with somebody they love or themselves knows that. It's ugly. And so we have to really work by the Spirit of God to love people through it. So basically, friends, all I'm saying here is that this is not an either-or conversation. Like we either apply practical boundaries and means or we deal with the ongoing heart problem. It's both. It's both. That's the only reasonable solution under the Word of God, right? So we do the acute triage work, as I've already said. We cut off access in order to make it possible. That's all we're doing. Because, friend, it's really hard to do heart work when somebody has constant access and they're constantly indulging in that particular struggle. If the individual that we're trying to work with with respect to their alcoholism, let's say, is getting drunk every evening, it's going to be difficult to do work. If the, if the porn addict is continually every day, has all kinds of access and is just continuing to look at it and ingest this stuff, it's going to be harder to do the heart work. It's common sense, right? Under the word of God. It's what we're talking about. It's not rocket science. I really don't need to open the Bible and quote a verse to you to make this sound reasonable. I hope it does. Heading number four, progress. Progress. So basically what I'm dealing with here is what would progress look like with respect to addiction? I'm going to leave you to maybe think back to other sermons or, or listen to other sermons whenever they're available to think about some of the things that I've already said in terms of a lot of what growth means in issues like this, sin in general, is increased awareness of your sin, your proclivities, your tendencies, the way you're tempted, whatever. When do I fall? Stuff like that. How do I get access to it? That, along with more mature responses to temptation and to the sin as it comes upon you. That's often what growth and sanctification look like. And then, the only other thing that I'm going to reiterate before I just give you a bullet point presentation of a few maybe newer thoughts or particular thoughts is that we need to have a realistic understanding of what this word or this idea of victory means, right? When we come to these kinds of conversations. Victory, as I've been very clear on the D again, does not mean deliverance completely from the struggle. It just doesn't. So in this case, it does not mean that you will never again feel the intense pull of drugs, alcohol, porn, or Netflix, or whatever it is. It's not that you won't feel that. You may feel that for the rest of your life at varying intervals, sometimes more intensely, sometimes more frequently, sometimes less. That's not what victory would mean. Victory and growth would mean that I'm more aware of it and I'm responding better to it. So some other things that I think would signify progress, and if you're taking notes, just jot these down, because this matters, right? We tend to be so all or nothing when it comes to thinking about this stuff that we really harm ourselves and other people. We bludgeon people to death with this kind of all or nothing business. And it's not biblical. So a change in the frequency of the sin, that's progress, right? It used to be happening every day. Now it's maybe once a week. That's actually really good, right? Now is it where you want to get to? No. But is it progress? Yes. And so like you be encouraged and brothers and sisters encourage those people where there's actually less frequency happening. A change in the nature of the sin. What I mean by this, I'm going to use the the sexual realm for example. Rather than going out and sleeping with people, we're now dealing with sexual fantasy. Okay, is that good? No. But is it good that you're not going to sleep with people? Yes. Right? I mean, again, not being ridiculous and all or nothing in the ways that we think about this. Sanctification and growth happen sometimes gradually, right? Sometimes it's immediate, but not always. An increase in honesty and transparency with brothers and sisters. I'm more eager to tell my brothers and sisters for real how I'm doing. I'm ready to confess, right? I'm ready to be transparent. I'm doing that more. That's good. That's progress. Not always indulging in the sin in the midst of difficult circumstances. 
So I realized that I used to run to this thing when my life got hard, and my life's kind of hard right now, and I'm not, I'm not running there. That's good. Like, praise God that He's doing that work in your life, right? Encourage one another in these ways. You're more quickly confessing and repenting of your sin. Like, instead of hiding it, you know, I mean, even trying to hide it from the Lord, I'm, I'm quickly confessing it to Him and others. And I'm repenting more quickly. And I'm just, not only that, not only am I turning from it more quickly, but I'm also more quick to believe and cling to the promises of God, of the forgiveness that's found in Christ, right? That's progress. So before, when I used to stumble, I would beat myself up for five days before I would really cling to Christ. And now I'm finding that it's only taking five hours and I'm doing better and I'm I'm trusting Christ and I'm crying out to the Lord. Praise God. That's progress. And I think it's clear that all of that progress is happening in the midst of still failing. Right? It doesn't mean that the only kind of progress is, well, I just no longer have a problem. There is a lot of progress that can be made that's not full deliverance or victory. Last heading. Last heading, number five. Loving the strugglers. Loving the strugglers. So this is kind of like the word to the church thing you know, that we've done or I've done in all of these sermons. And so before I say any of what I'm about to say, uh, I want to just, again, disclaimer. What I'm about to exhort us to certainly cannot be done in our own strength. What I'm about to exhort us to is supernatural. It is a work of the Spirit of God because you're going to listen to me say this stuff and you're going to be that guy is an absolute moron if he thinks that we can do this. I'm talking about something that only God can do that is hard from our perspective and it will be an ongoing work in progress. And you hear me say this sometimes. I preach better sermons than I can live. I also hope to preach better sermons than you can live. And so if I'm preaching or Brandon's preaching or Ron or anybody else who's preaching, if we're preaching stuff that we can kind of easily live up to, we're preaching way too low. Way too low. So here we go. We're going to set the bar way up here. And by God's grace, by God's Spirit, we can see some of these things happen. Okay. So we want to acknowledge the real temporal consequences that addiction brings. Not only to the struggler, the addict, but also to the loved ones of the addict. So we deal with this pastorally whenever we're involved in a situation where there could be potential danger or harm. We want the loved ones of the addict, in this case, to feel safe, to be protected. We don't want harm coming to people. That's a real consideration. It's a real concern in some cases. It's always on our minds as elders. So we we don't want to be naive about the deceitfulness of sin or about the horrors that it brings. And addiction is in some ways unique in some cases, in the kind of just sheer irrationality that it can produce in the suffering, right? So we want to be real about that. We don't want to stick our heads in the sand and ignore that. We need to care for the loved ones of the strugglers, right? So we need to be mindful of the fact that the spouses and the kids and all the rest will be hurting too when people go through this. And so we need to aim as a church to bear the loved one's burden also, to rally around them also. They too need to know that the church will never leave them or forsake them, right? The struggler needs that and the loved ones need that. So we have to strive to to do that. Now, now I get into the part that's especially difficult because you might have been sitting there thinking, I'm doing pretty well so far. I think we can do that. But now here it comes. We need to come to terms with the fact that the struggle with addiction may very well be ongoing. So that means that your loved one, your brother or sister in the faith, may very well fail at many points between now and heaven. He or she may very well fall back into addictive patterns. And you're frustrated. You're brokenhearted. You're wounded. You're pissed. You're angry. It's just like, man, I thought we were beyond this. I thought this was behind us. And we're going through this stuff again. Are you kidding? That's an understandable way to feel. Right? We've all been there in one way or another. But then in realizing that it's going to be ongoing, we've got to deal with this whole gospel and grace and forgiveness piece. 
right, that's so hard for us. Because when the person struggling with addiction stumbles again, and they come and they confess, they come and they ask for forgiveness, it needs to be extended. When Jesus tells us to forgive our enemies 70 times 7, meaning a lot of times infinitely, basically, when he tells us that, he doesn't tell us that with a bunch of qualifications. Like, well, now, you know, examine their lives very seriously and look for all the genuine signs of repentance and do this and do this and and give it six months and then, okay, and then forgive them. No. He says when they come to you and ask for forgiveness, forgive them. And that's where you're like, oh, my gosh, brother, that's going to take a lot of grace, to which we say, exactly. It will take a lot of grace. But then that's where, this is in particular speaking to the caregiver, right, right now. This is for your heart and mind. Let's be real for a minute. Like you're, you're sick of the way that your loved one keeps wounding you and hurting your family through addiction. You need to think for just a moment about the ways that your sin wound your family and wound your spouse and your kids and your friends and other members of this church, right? Like consider this series. You think your depression doesn't wound people around you? You think your anxiety doesn't cause problems in your marriage with your kids? You think that your lust, your anger, your greed, your laziness, oh, there's a good one, your laziness, you think those things don't hurt your household? They do. They do. They bring wreckage, just like addiction, right? And so the reason I'm saying this is that we should not put addiction into its own category in that it is just far away worse and fundamentally different than every other kind of sin, because it's not. Are the earthly consequences sometimes more severe? Sure. Absolutely. No argument with me there. But is it different fundamentally? No, it's not. And so we need to be mindful of that as caregivers. Because the church has not been helpful here in making addiction and other forms of sin, like particularly taboo. Like that's where the really bad sinners go. As if there's any other kind, right? And so, just like your sin is an issue in your home or in your life, you need to too realize that your sin struggles are ongoing. Just like the addict may continue to struggle with addiction, many of us will continue to struggle with lust, depression, anxiety, whatever, fill in the blank, laziness, for years and decades maybe. And it will repetitively cause problems. And we will be the ones continually going and saying, please forgive me, right? So my goodness, the gospel comes to bear in this conversation and everyone about sin. And I don't even have time to go into our constant going to God and asking Him to forgive us. Last words, friends. It's good to remember as a caregiver that you can't control other people. You certainly cannot control the person who's struggling with addiction. You can't even control your own heart for crying out loud. This idea that you can control somebody else's is absolute craziness. You can say true things. You can love them. You can pray for them. You can plead with them, right? You can't change them yourself. Only God can do that. That's not to make you feel hopeless. That's actually to free you up from feeling like you're failing because your loved one is struggling. And that's also to give you hope and confidence that God can and will do it. And so, in landing this whole sermon series, and I'm going to try to do this very briefly, friends, thank you for bearing with me. We are striving here at CBC to have a culture that's honest about sin, that's wise about sin, that practices compassionate accountability with charity, with patience, when it comes to addiction or any other struggle. And awareness of our own sin helps here. We talk about this as pastors often when we leave counseling sessions. If people, ourselves included, were more aware of our own sin, the depth of it, the reach of it, the scope of it, the heinousness of it, we would be so much more compassionate with our fellow sinners. It's much harder for you to be angry with others about their sin if you are appropriately aware of your own. It will be hard for you to be self-righteous or impatient or uncharitable if you are aware of your own sin. So if you find it hard to forgive your brother or sister, a good exercise would be to contemplate your own sin. 
And then ultimately, in all of this, we want to be a church that's constantly, in every way, pointing one another to Jesus. His righteousness, our identity in Him, forgiveness in Him, grace in Him. And so it's appropriate that in just a minute around the table, we're going to sing grace greater than our sin in order to partake of the Lord's Supper today, but just to conclude this series in general. And I hope that that song, Grace Greater Than Our Sin, can remind us all of the wonderful truth that there is always more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Praise be to His name. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we do thank You again for Your Son and for what He has done for us. We thank You for those of us who have come to know Him, that You, by Your Spirit, have brought us from death to life and have given us a new name and a new identity in Jesus. We pray that You would keep doing work by Your Spirit to change us from the inside out. We pray that You would continue to create in our church the kind of culture that we've been thinking about for these four weeks. We pray that our church would bring You honor and glory. And we pray that the way we live together would be good for us. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.